This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. All right, back at it with another episode of Play by Playcast. Thanks, as always, for the subscribe, the stream, the download, if you take a couple of seconds, the rating or review on iTunes, on Stitcher, or wherever you are listening to this here podcast. It is the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, Hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. It's a professional development podcast diving into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. My name is Joel Godet, the television and radio play-by-play voice of the Ball State University Cardinals. You can find the podcast on social media at PXPCast. You can find me on social media at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. Or you can hit me up via email at J. Not at, the at comes later. J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U dot E-D-U. It's that time of year, finally. I've said it a couple of weeks in a row now. Uh, we're finally back to, at least from a collegiate standpoint, uh, the absolutely nuts season. One of two. Crossover season, football, basketball, that's nuts. And then the other one is fall football camp time. And not just fall football camp time. But when you're the radio broadcaster for football and also the video guy for the university and the athletic department, uh, it's not just fall football training camp, but it's also soccer and field hockey and volleyball. And you've got to be able to touch all the different bases. I, I put out four videos today. It is 1223 in the morning as I record this because I wasn't smart enough to do it earlier in the week when it wasn't past midnight. Um, but that, that's just uh, the, the time of year we are in. And uh, in, in a weird way, the fun part of it all. So uh, looking forward to uh, what fall football training camp has and then the kickoff of football season, which is now, as I record this, 20 days away. Also back from the CrossFit Games, which was last week. Uh, Wednesday they started... My broadcasts for the age group divisions, the masters and the teenagers, um, ages 16 and 17, and then 35 to 39, 40 to 44, and 45 to 49. Um, Broadcasts for those were Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and what an absolute blast. Uh, I think I talked about it on the pod a little bit last week, but the, the production that goes into all of this, there were nine television trucks at the CrossFit Games. And it was awesome. We're going to have Sean Woodland on here at some point in the next couple of weeks. He is the voice of the CrossFit Games. He does um, the main open divisions. So you're 18 to however old you are, as long as you continue to qualify, uh, divisions, which is your, on the men's side, Matt Fraser and Pat Vellner, uh, Rich Froning several years back, and Ben Smith. Uh, on the women's side, all your Nordic goddesses, uh, Katrin Davis' daughter, uh, David's daughter. That's two weeks in a row I've done that. Katrin David's daughter, uh, Annie Thor's daughter, and um, Sarah Sigmund's daughter, Brooke Wells, Tia Claire Toomey, um, Camille LeBlanc-Bazinet, all of those, those big names. 
so Sean Woodland handles the play-by-play for that. We'll we'll have him on the pod here in a couple of weeks and talk a little bit about uh, broadcasting CrossFit in a little bit more depth. But it is fun. I mean, it's a race, and it's got a lot of components and a lot of moving pieces. And when you're doing the age group divisions, there are 20 competitors in every heat. And there are no heats. I mean, it's just an event. There's only 20 people in the field. And it's 20 going at a time. Winner wins the event. And it's wild. Because you've got to keep your eye on 20 lanes. And there were a lot of times where the event winner came out of lane 1 or 20 or 2 or 18. And not necessarily 10 or 11 or 9. Uh, the ones right in the middle of the the field, the playing playing surface, quote unquote, where where your leaders were. So it was wild, uh, and it was fun. Uh, a lot of the times, the guys take their shirts off, so you, they don't have their names on their chest. They just have their their chest on their chest. Um, their number is usually somewhere on their shorts and on the end of their lane. But uh, sometimes quick identification becomes a little bit more difficult. Uh, it gets easier as the weekend goes on, but uh, it, it was it was an experience and uh, thrilled that they had me on to do it and uh, excited and uh, looking forward to, to doing it again. But uh, we'll talk more about CrossFit play-by-play uh, with Sean Woodland here in the coming weeks. Today, we will talk about baseball play-by-play because Tim Haggerty is our guest. He is the voice of the AAA El Paso Chihuahuas. They are the AAA affiliate of the San Diego Padres, and we'll dive right into it. Um, but a, a whole bunch of topics with Tim today, including the fact that he was on the broadcast team for the Portland Beavers, the AAA affiliate of the San Diego Padres, followed the team to become the Tucson Padres, the AAA affiliate of the San Diego Padres, and then became the broadcaster for the Chihuahuas, who are a different team than the Tucson Padres. So he, he had to in some ways, reapply for his job with a new team and a new ownership group. Uh, so we'll dive into kind of what it was like moving around with a franchise and an organization when it wasn't truly the same franchise and organization. There's some interesting uh, pieces to that and, and the way that ownership structures work in the minors. So we'll get into that. We'll get into voice techniques, uh, how he works with breathing, how he eliminated a Boston accent, um, excitement levels in broadcasting baseball and kind of feeling out the ebb and flow of the game, good storytelling, how to tell a good story, how to map out telling a good story. And uh, then we'll round things out talking about his book as well and uh, what it's like publishing a book and going through that whole process as well. Tim Haggerty is the voice of the AAA El Paso Chihuahuas. His website, if you'd like more information, timhaggerty.com. But uh, for more information straight from the source, Tim Haggerty, talking about how he first got into play-by-play to start things off on his episode of PXPCast. Well, I was lucky that uh, the town I grew up in, Canton, Massachusetts, the town cable access TV station was at our high school. Uh, So they had this class where kids would be involved with producing a newscast and in some cases doing some play-by-play. So um, I was broadcasting our high school's football, basketball games when I was 17 um, and instantly felt that infection of what it was like to be live on the air, especially when something unique or exciting happens. I remember the the second ever game I did play-by-play for, I was 17. It was a uh, Massachusetts high school playoff basketball game and a Foxborough player, Foxborough is the town right next door, 
where the Patriots play, as you guys know. Um, and this player threw one up from his own free throw line all the way across the court, and it goes in as a buzzer beater. And this is before videos are really on the internet on a regular basis. And our high school got calls from Real TV with Ahmad Rashad <laughs> from a couple of uh, national sports stations. So I instantly, at a young age, realized that whenever you're on the air, whenever there's a live game taking place, something could happen that ends up with your voice on national TV. So, um, so what did uh, what did 17-year-old Tim Haggerty think of that call, and what does 36-year-old Tim Haggerty think <laughs> of that call? Well, just with the uh, amateur production, we got back and popped the videotape into the uh, player back at our high school, and there was this really persistent buzzing noise. Yes. You could barely hear my voice. <laughs> There's like a fuzz. So I felt this pit in my stomach. Oh, my God, I, my voice isn't on there. So in our very amateur way, we tried to redub the call from a studio, laid the audio over it, and... 17-year-old Tim thought it was okay, but um, 36-year-old Tim cringes at it now, which I I think we should cringe at our old calls. Yeah. Um, even if I the, – the other day I heard a clip from four years ago, and I felt there was a tension in my voice. So even 36-year-old Tim cringes at 32-year-old Tim. Well, let's go down that path uh, while, we're, while we're there. Um, how much do you – uh, listen back, uh, how, I mean, and, and how recent is it? Like, will you pop in a tape from four years ago um, and, and just kind of compare to where you are now, just as kind of like, I don't know, like a heat check type thing? Or, or how, what's your evaluation process of uh, of how you've gotten better and, and I, how you do it in the moment too? Yeah, I think it's good to um, have a little bit of a pause, but not too long. And what I mean is there are times that I think an inning sounded really good. I don't want to listen to that right after that game because you're still feeling the emotion and the brain chemicals of that big crowd or that exciting walk-off, and you might be biased. I've kind of found that a call or an inning was never as good or never as bad yep. as I thought it was. Uh, generally, it's somewhere in between. But I think it's really important to listen. Um, I can remember... You know, this is my 15th year now, and recently there was this walk-off play in El Paso, and the call was something like, swinging a line drive down the line, it's fair, so-and-so scores, and the Chihuahuas win. And after the game, I felt this jubilation. Wow, my voice sounded good. I Great crowd noise. But then if you listen back to that call, it said, swinging a line drive down the line, it's fair. I never said if it was the right or the left field line. Mm. So my excitement wasn't correct. You know, when you wait a day later and you listen to it, you think actually, no, that wasn't a good call. Um, but typically when I'm in the booth, a couple of hours before the game, filling out my lineups, I like to put on the MP3 from the previous day's game. Um, typically to a point that I thought was good. A friend of mine in the Pacific coast league years ago said one of his goals that year was to listen to his best and his worst inning from the night before. I remember thinking, no, I don't want to listen to my worst <laughs> inning. No, I don't. I want to pretend that that never happened. So for me personally, I try to click to a part. Okay, uh, that story I told last night, and I did this just the other day, Oklahoma City, where I am as we tape this, uh, they have the ambidextrous pitcher, Pat Vendetti, 
Um, not not amphibious, as the newspaper likes to say. <laughs> right, right. Not underwater, no. <laughs> um, and I thought that I kind of summarized his background and that unique um, trait that he has of being ambidextrous well. So I just as I was filling in my scorecard, uh, listened back to that. Uh, as far as the 2014 clip that I referenced, that was um, I was putting together some highlights of the history of the team that I work for and happened to come across it. And um, for me, when I'm listening or self-critiquing, for the most part, I'm always looking at vocal tension, pitch changes, delivery, the sound of it. I've never been scared of a stumble. I think occasionally that's going to happen. Or if maybe you didn't tell a story too well, I mean, that's going to happen. Mm. I think the the preventable things are, was I speaking clearly? Did I talk too much? Kind of the mechanics of it. Have you ever really, like, have you ever been happy with it? Or is it even like when you find something good, do you still think to yourself, there's something in there that I can tweak and get better? Like, are you one of those people, like, that, that, are, that are always... Like it's this never-ending conquest to try to 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 conquer the perfect broadcast, or or uh, or, or are you one of those kind of guys that that can at least have peace with what happened the night before? Um, I I can't think of a time I ever was really satisfied, which sometimes does frustrate me. You know, the minor leagues, I'm doing 140 games a year, <laughs> and you'd think that somewhere in there there'd be a 10-minute block that <laughs> was good. Um, but that's kind of the challenge we face every fall. You know, if you're thinking about your demo tape is, okay, what presents what I do the best? Um, and unfortunately, there's always something that makes it a B plus instead of an A plus. When picking innings for that, I always lean towards the sound. Did your voice sound good? Um, the background noise, was it present? Was there a good effects mic getting the crack of the bat? Hmm over a story i think i think in the end when we're being evaluated it's almost like people listening to a band you know in the end your favorite bands you like the sound not necessarily what they're singing about i think that's secondary um like, did you know what this song was about no i never really stopped to think about it no no i mean some of my favorite you know i was just uh thinking about this the other day the smashing pumpkins song um you know, despite all my rage, that song. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, really popular in the nineties. And um, the other day I heard an interview with Billy Corgan, the singer, and he said, you know, some people just think of me as the rat in a cage guy. <laughs> and uh, I said to myself, I said, rat in a cage. I always thought you were saying ready to cave. <laughs> I'm still just ready to cave, but apparently he's saying rat in a cage. Yeah. And that illustrates what we're talking about. I, you know, if I've probably heard that song 2000 times and I didn't know what the words were. So, um, no, I, I think it is a, a conquest for me. I think when I was first getting started, I, I recognized I was going to be somebody that probably would have to work hard at it. Um, we both know guys that can just roll out of bed with these pipes and these skills that could just kind of stumble into a booth and just do it. Um, and I think that all of us that do play by play do have, some natural ability, obviously, but um, I kind of recognized early on that I was going to be someone that would have to be very conscious and present to get better. Why do you say that? Because this is my 15th year now, and I think every year I've been better in August than April. And I think that shows that 
Um, there was some room there for improvement in all ways. I think early on, uh, I think back to when I was in my early 20s, I think I'd kind of be announcing the game. It was like, um, you know, I didn't speak in the same voice as I would when ordering a sandwich five hours earlier. Um, it wasn't as conversational. Um, and I think some people have that ability or that confidence when they're in their early 20s to maybe just hop on and speak in the same conversational, likable way that they do off air. Um, but I think that was kind of a process for me to get to where I am. And my hope is that, you know, August of 2019, I'm better than today. I don't think you ever want to reach a point where you totally are, you know, uh, not growing. That said, you were a, you were still a pretty you were a quick riser, I guess, to at least the point where you're at to the AAA level. Um, where you, you did Idaho Falls for one or two years. One year, and then it was, and then you right to Mobile, and then there a couple of two or three years there, right? Yeah, I was there three seasons. Okay, and then you wound up in Portland. Uh, kind of take me on that ladder of of your minor league journey and uh, what those stops were like, how they helped you, and and how you were able to climb kind of each rung by 25 years old to, to be in the PCL. Yeah. First job was 2004 with Idaho falls, which is a great experience. Like I said, I'm from Massachusetts. I had never been anywhere out West. And I was on this bus going through Wyoming, Montana, Utah. Uh, why else would I have been to these places? That was <laughs> a thrill. Um, and I think that that's something that I encourage people to do. I, occasionally like you will get emails from people that are, finishing up college or maybe looking for a job change that are pursuing play by play. And I mean, embrace living in Idaho. Don't look at it as uh, a negative part of the job. Look at it as the biggest positive of the job. You get to live in um, Idaho. You don't have to live in Idaho. Yeah. yeah. Good phrasing. Exactly. Um, I've been to 49 of the States and most of that is because of baseball. I think that's a gift, maybe the biggest gift of doing this. So uh, Idaho is great. Uh, I went down to the winter meetings, December of 04, and caught wind that AA Mobile might be looking for somebody and um, tracked down the general manager, introduced myself, talked my way into a job interview, and was lucky to get that job. There were others that had much more experience than me that probably would have been interested, but right place, right time, and a little bit of healthy stalking got me a job interview um, and was there for three years. That was another great experience. It was my first time in the South. And uh, as I look back to Mobile, a lot of the things I'm doing now, both on and off the air, I learned there when it comes to learning how to update the team website. Um, social media was just kind of burgeoning then. And um, I also worked for a general manager, Bill Shanahan. He had been running minor league teams forever um, and was a, a really good boss looking back he was critical. He was, he would inspect the employees. He really wanted to have his hand on the pulse of everything that was going on. And at the time I was just 22 and looking back, that was probably helpful for my growth. Um, and then, uh, next step was, uh, triple Portland. I was not the lead announcer there. Uh, someone who remains a good friend, Rich Burke is Oh yeah. Friend uh, of the pod. Rich. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Rich would be, uh, good guess for you if you haven't already he's doing a lot of stuff for pac 12 network and the hillsborough hops and even did some olympic coverage for nbc oh, yeah. um 
And what happened there was uh, the Portland Beavers introduced a television package where uh, 20 home games would be televised. They wanted somebody to cover those games on radio and then also join Rich for home games, cover an occasional road trip. Um, and that was a good step because that was the first bigger city that I was in. Idaho Falls and Mobile, you had a small but loyal audience. But Portland was the first place that I started to get like, um, okay, why does this guy say this? Or who is this guy? And, you know, there was this one particular fan who would call the stadium in the middle of the night and leave these long ranting messages. And typically they were about hot dog prices or the bad bullpen. Um, but a couple of times this target was me. And as you know, sometimes in the minor leagues, the small loyal following that just loves you. But the fact is they're just excited that the games are on the radio and they get to follow the team. Uh, this was the first time that somebody's kind of directing anger at my play by play. And, um, that was another great experience. You know, it was, uh, the first time that happens to you, makes you a little bit sensitive, but, um, I remember that guy teaching me that sometimes they're right. I remember he said one time, Tim will say things like, um, swinging a line drive back to the net foul. And when I hear swinging a line drive, I'm picturing that ball blasting out somewhere on the field. And, you know, I said, you know what? He's right. And I never said that again. It, it was awkward phrasing to say a line drive back to the net, yeah. you know, say swinging a foul back to the net. So um, I think when people hammer you and there's so much of that now with social media, so many avenues for people to try to take a swipe at you that, you know, maybe sometimes they're right. Anyway, I'm giving a really long answer, but no, that's uh, good. Um, Portland, uh, had a very popular minor league soccer team, the Portland Timbers that had a chance to join major league soccer. And with that, they shared the stadium with the AAA Portland Beavers and it made it. So the Portland Beavers were without a home. They were unable to find a new stadium in Portland. And as they sorted this out, the team temporarily went to Tucson, which had an open AAA capable ballpark. Um, it was going to be just a one-year site as they built a new stadium in Escondido, California, near San Diego. Uh, the one-year site turned out to be three seasons. <laughs> and that was, uh, at times, an uneasy period for me because I didn't know the long-term future of the team. Uh, it's around this time that I got married. So when you get married, there's also kind of um, a little added pressure there when there's your mate that's... Um, also swept up in what, what city you're going to live oh, in. Yeah. Um, but fortunately, uh, El Paso came through a group of local owners there purchasing, um, the team and then putting together a stadium plan. So I was lucky it all worked out because Portland to Tucson, Tucson to El Paso. Yes, it was the Padres AAA team the whole time, but there were new owners of the minor league club every time, a new general manager every time. So that was not guaranteed for me. Uh, but I was fortunate enough to get to make both moves with the team. Yeah, what are you thinking as that all plays out? And obviously, I know you, you, you met your wife in Portland, correct? That's right, yeah. But uh, we got married in 2012 when we were in uh, Tucson. In Tucson. But like, yes. so you're in this place. You don't know how long you're going to be there. You don't know if you're going to be there when, when it's all over. Um, like, how do, you, yeah. how do you have a life when you don't know? I mean... Like there, there's something. It's a bad equivalency, but there's something very like militaristic about it. It's like I'm, I'm going to be here for six months, and then I don't know where I'm getting shipped to next. Um, like, how do you yeah. have any kind of life outside of what we do for a living, or does that kind of become who you are until everything sorts itself out and, and you're in El Paso? 
Yeah, I think that if I had to look at things personally, that that probably has been a weakness because I, that probably were times that I um, didn't feel that life as much. And even now during the season, I think sometimes I surrender to the season too much and it might even help me play by play wise if I did go to a movie <laughs> or did read a book that wasn't baseball related. So I actually try to do that. But yeah, Tucson, um, you know, it was a great experience. I loved my coworkers, loved my boss there. But as far as the curiosity about the future of the team, that was very unsettling um, because there was at times still a heartbeat for this Escondido project. And Escondido is only a half hour from San Diego. And I felt that if the Padres AAA team moved there, there would have been well-known San Diego sportscasters just crawling to get that job. Yeah. I felt like there would have been even extra competition. Um, I felt that if El Paso became the long-term home of the Padres AAA team, that I had a better chance. That would be a more traditional minor league environment. Um, and I knew some of the people that would be operating that team. I felt like I had a better chance there. So I find myself kind of rooting for that. Um, if any Padres fans in San Diego are listening, I know they were hoping the ball club went to uh, Escondido. So nothing personal. I'm not saying I just felt like for me personally, I had a better chance if El Paso became the home. So um, it was very uneasy because, you know, let's say there was a well-known El Paso sportscaster that knew the owners and was able to talk his way into that job. Just because you're in AAA for five or six years does not by any means guarantee you would get another AAA job. I mean, there are times that entire winters go by without any of the 30 AAA teams with a job open. So, um, I mean, there was a chance that I would have had to go to a, a new city at a lower level club. And who knows? I, I don't know. Um, believe me, I, I feel very lucky that it all worked out. You know, I remember in, in Tucson, I used to go on the road and I'd go to a, a great ballpark with good fan support, like, uh, Tacoma or Albuquerque and just thinking, you know, if I could just get this, um, and now, now I have that. So I think that, you know, so many AAA announcers, uh, all of us hope to get to the major leagues, but I think that that experience in Tucson helped me that I'm very appreciative for what I have now, uh, to have more stability, a great ballpark, a team with a long-term bright future. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the technical side of broadcasting more and kind of dive into that route. I know we, 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 we touched on it earlier a little bit, but uh, uh, I want to ask you about voice because uh, I've read some articles where you talk about voicing and things like that uh, and your instrument uh, and the muscle. Um, let me start there, the muscle side of it. Uh, there was a newspaper article written about you that said something about like exercising in February uh, and, and I couldn't tell if that was like a, you go to the gym in February and they just kind of got their wires crossed or if like before the season starts, you start doing things to get your voice prepped. Um, is it the former or the latter? Well, um, or both. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, you know, for me, I'll fill in on basketball, but I don't do nearly as much play by play in the winter as somebody like you does. So, uh, sometimes in April, I do feel a little bit of a strain on the voice because, all of a sudden your vocal box is like, wait a minute, we're doing this again. Uh, I'm not ready for this. So, um, yeah, I think if you go to YouTube, there's a lot of excellent breathing exercises and, um, ways to get the voice going tongue twisters that I think I found there is more than you can do than maybe I thought when I was younger. Um, but I think about questions like this all the time. And in fact, I was just talking to a friend about this, that, 
you know, in baseball press boxes, we always talk about the players. Who's a good interview. We talk about the baseball side. I don't think we talk nearly enough about the performance side of our jobs. Um, you know, in 2017, I just developed this very idiosyncratic habit, but I think it's helped a lot. And that is trying to take a breath as the pitch is coming in that way. I have a full tank of gas in case there's a double down the line on that swing. So, you know, I'll say a two on from Godet and then take a breath as that ball is coming in. And it's typically timed well enough that when there's a swing, you got a full deep breath in you. Um, and little things like that have made a big difference. I think with calling baseball for me, because what it also does is it's, dividing the pitches They're, the pitches are giving you a natural grid for your play-by-play -play. it stops you from talking over pitches and helps your voice when there's an action play right there and to me that's been the benefit of calling you know 1800 games now it's just small things like that that you pick up uh you mentioned being from canton massachusetts how long did it take you to stop saying that you pocked the cod Harvard yard yeah, my uh, family still has very strong accents. People can't believe it. Um, my wife was stunned when she first met my parents. <laughs> she said, uh, this would be like if my family had a British accent. It just doesn't match up. <laughs> but uh, it took a lot. I went to Linden State College up in Vermont, um, a school that really specialized in broadcasting and had speech classes. And as I look back to videotapes where I'm on camera, there's a real tension um, in my lips and in my mouth. And I find that if you go to smaller markets and watch the local TV, TV news, you'll see the reporters or the meteorologists doing that. Also, I can tell it's like they're forcing their speech. So that took a lot of getting used to. Um, I thought that for me, the biggest thing was to just always be conscious of it. Not always conscious only on the air, like even throughout the day, conscious of how you're saying your words because that would just be so limiting if you have an accent as far as what markets you could work in i mean that'll instantly throw you into the no thanks pile when people are listening to demos so i mean are there things uh, that you could do or was it just like what kind how do you how do you focus on not saying a word a way that you've said it for 18 years um had good teachers that would flag it when they heard things hmm. Because there were, it's not only like the R thing with Boston. People always, they, they speak very fast also. There's kind of an OR thing in there too, like orange instead of orange. Um, that I think I just found myself throughout the day when I was just having a conversation with somebody really aware of how that was sounding. Um, and also that was a really important time to listen back to your tapes. Also, I can remember doing the morning news and sports on a local AM radio station and always recording those and listening that day and at times cringing. Um, <laughs> I think if that, that has been a strength, I've always been a good self-evaluator. I think some people are prideful of their work and they're resistant when somebody gives them critiques. Um, but I think I've always recognized there's room for improvement that, that probably helped me with the accent as well. And I have a friend who does uh, TV news and he says that he can just switch it on and off. So when he's hanging out with buddies, 
he still talks like somebody from Massachusetts. And for me, that seems impossible to be able to, when the, <laughs> when the red light comes on to then become a different person. Um, you know, maybe, maybe in TV news, the voice isn't as important as natural the way it is in our job. So maybe that's how he's able to do that. But that seems like a big risk to me. All right, back to Tim Haggerty in just a second. And in a little bit, we will talk about his book, Root for the Home Team, in which he breaks down interesting and unique minor league baseball team names. It's a book. So that means that there's always a potential. You don't have to read it. You could have someone read it to you. And the way you can do that is by going to audibletrial.com backslash or forward slash. I think it's the forward forward slash forward slash audibletrial.com forward slash PXPcast. Over 180,000 book titles, including popular new releases. And if you sign up for a free trial, it will cost you zero dollars. 30 day free trial. They will give you a free, it will cost you $0, audiobook to keep. So head to that website, audibletrial.com forward slash PXPcast. Sign up for a free 30-day free trial. They'll give you a free audiobook to keep. I know you love audio. I know you love books. I know you love learning. That's why we're all here. Head to audibletrial.com forward slash PXPcast. Uh, help kick back a little bit to the pod and get yourself some free reading slash listening material. Back to the pot. Tell me a little bit about uh, the the feedback you got to uh, that in terms of being excited. I, I read a quote where you talked about somebody had said that you shouldn't yeah. be too excited, um, and and how that plays into the understanding of kind of the pacing of a baseball game and when to. And I guess this is a voice thing too. Um, when to use those upper echelons and when to be a little bit more. Um, listenable to somebody who's just chilling out, having a beer, sitting in the stands and, and wanting to hear something that kind of mimics their emotions as time goes through a game. Yeah. Uh, excitement and baseball play by play. I mean, I could give a whole <laughs> dissertation on this. I, I love this topic because um, it's what I really like about talking about the craft, just the, the little pockets of it like this. But, um, you know, I remember it was after the 2010 season submitting a demo to somebody for feedback and they thought, I think their phrasing was, you have a good voice, but um, you're, you're boring on the exciting plays. They didn't feel like it was real when I was calling a double to the gap. Hmm. So the guy said, you know, I think you're good. I think, you know, the game, obviously, I think his phrasing was, but I worry that sometimes you sound indifferent when there's a double in the gap, like you're not invested. And his advice to me was, I want you to pretend like you're Gus Johnson. I want you in your head to go crazy like Gus Johnson does. And his theory was, uh, if in my head I feel like I'm going at a 10, actually on the air, that will come out like a six, which is where I want to be, according to this guy. So I did that for the 2011 season. And looking back, I don't think it worked because there was strain in my voice. It almost was on the border of yelling. I was getting so excited. And uh, a friend of a friend is Vince Catronio, the A's broadcaster. Very, very nice guy. Vince did Tucson play-by-play and knew the general manager of the Tucson Padres. That's who he worked for 20 years earlier. Um, And the general manager put us in touch. So then I sent Vince... Uh, hoping for feedback, sent him a demo from 2011. That was the Gus Johnson season for me. (laughs) And Vince, 
and one of his critiques said, um, good excitement, but you're a little too excited at times. So now I'm thinking to myself, gosh, I mean, the guy last year says I'm not excited enough. The guy this year says I'm too excited. <laughs> um, but I think that uh, looking back, they both were probably right. I think, I think that there were times that I wasn't excited enough. I think, you know, I'm naturally not necessarily the guy who's the life of the party who's going to yell and do impressions. I think, um, you know, naturally I'm probably like a little more calm. So I have to get out of my shell and be excited. Um, but the Gus Johnson thing, I probably was being artificial. I probably was trying too hard. Sure. So now, now I think I've found a, a good medium there. But I think that's a big thing about baseball play-by-play because it is a slower-paced, relaxed sport that you might go eight to ten minutes without cranking up the voice, but then be sure that you're ready when there is a diving play. So, um, yeah, I still work on that when it comes to an exciting play, and I, I think I've done better at that than the two previous stories. Is there a... Uh, is there a... I don't know. Is there like a secret tip that you like to go to when it comes to baseball play-by-play? I just like when, when we had John Schambi on here, um, he talked about, you know, he always says the pitch or here's the two, two before uh-huh. the pitch is ever thrown. Because if you say it as the pitch is coming home, you're a dead duck. You're already late. Um, is there anything yeah. that, that you like? That's kind of like, uh, this is something that, that, that I like to hear from people that, or, or that I like to try to, impart to others or that works for me um that's that's really good that people don't always think about well first off that's a great point by john um i got that critique after the 2016 season is uh the audio that i sent somebody there was a diving play involved and the throw was high and the runner was safe and then there's the factor of does the score separate the diving play from the high throw the runner safe and as as I was recapping the play, um, there is a foul ball into the stands. And then like when recapping, I said something like the old ones fouled off. I went to almost like it was like as an aside, like, mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, but no, 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 don't do that. The pitch is the thing. You have to let the radio listener know that something might happen right then. Yeah. Um, you know, you'll hear that sometimes, I hear that all the time on like back-to-back home runs. If they come on two pitches in a row, a lot of times that second home run is messed up because they're still talking about the first one. But anyway, um, other tips, uh, but I agree with John's is what I'm getting at. Uh, other <laughs> tips. I think that, uh, you know, the breathing thing I was talking about earlier. Um, but something else that I think doesn't come up enough, you know, we could sit here and talk about preparation and, um, memorizing the defense and things like that. But a basic thing is how does your body feel? I don't think this comes up enough Hmm. when talking about this, but um, I find now that my best games, those are the days that I was well-rested, maybe did a little bit of exercise that day. Maybe I had a more healthy lunch as opposed to pizza. Um, You know, if you want to go out with your buddies after a night game, maybe you have, one beer and not six. Um, and especially in the Pacific coast league where a couple times a week, we're waking up very early to catch these five o'clock AM flights to go to the next city. Mm. Um, 
as much as you want to on those travel days when you're on four hours sleep, there are times that 705 hits and in your head you're thinking, God, this uh, might not be a good one, but you battle through it. But I find now, especially that I have my routine with my preparation and my interviews, that I think my best games are when I'm thinking clearly and when my body feels good. So as crazy as it sounds, I mean, some people might think I'm a wacko, but there are times that I'll travel with uh, stretch bands and maybe if it's just 15, 20 minutes in the hotel doing some exercise, um, maybe you think about your breathing or you think about some mantra words throughout the day to just kind of focus your mind, think about that day. I think that the 10 minutes before you go on the air, I try to not play with my phone, not look at Twitter. I just kind of try to look around the stadium, feel your senses. I think that connects me to the game. I know I'm talking really outside the box, but I, I do think all these things work as far as clearing your mind. Um, anyway, so I, I think that should come up more often is how our body feels. I mean, a season for any sport is a physical exercise. Yeah. Well, I mean, you brought in prep and all that, and I want to go down that that road in a, in a way here with you as well, um, because in what I've read, it keeps coming up time and again that you're a really good storyteller, and that's one of the things that, that kind of is a hallmark for you. Um, why do you think that is, and what's the key to weaving a good story in baseball, considering what was just said in terms of, you know, the pitch is the thing, um, yeah. don't let, you know, don't let the game get in the way of a good story or, or vice versa, so to speak. Uh, I think that the key to a good story on the air is to tell it in a way that you're telling it to a casual fan, um, and to make it succinct. So, you know, El Paso has this player, Brett Nicholas. I know you mentioned you crossed paths with him in your minor league baseball days. Love that guy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he tells a great story. Um, and this is topical because I just told it the other night, so I'll use it as an example. Nicholas um, grew up in Arizona, but his grandparents lived in the Seattle area, and he'd spend his summers in Seattle. And he's sitting there as a teenager at Safeco Field with his grandpa, and grandpa was the reason he liked baseball. His grandfather was a big baseball fan. And he turns to his grandfather and said, someday I'm going to leave you tickets here to watch me play. Well, you can picture where the story is going. Years later, he, he grinds through the Rangers organization, and they're on a road trip, and the manager calls him in and says, hey, you're going to the big leagues tomorrow. And he made his major league debut for a Rangers road game in Seattle. <laughs> um, in the story, it exactly happened. Uh, he left his grandfather tickets at Safeco Field. You know, even as I retell it for a baseball fan, that puts chills on my arm. Mm. So... When telling that, you know, think about that story. There's a couple of different layers. It's hard to tell that story without going too long. So then I think about that casual fan. There's no visual here. They're listening on the radio. You know, I think about that as just three blocks. I'm going to tell one of them per pitch. Really shorten the story up. Um, so I trim the first part. I don't say... He grew up in Arizona, but then he'd spend his summers in Seattle. I just got to get him in Seattle with grandpa, you know, so just cut off the first part and say, he used to visit his grandparents in Seattle. And one day at a Mariners game, he says, grandpa, I'm going to leave you tickets here to watch me play. You know, and then you think about trimming the next part. Yeah. Gets drafted by the Rangers, grinds through the organization, 
And one day finds out he's going to the big leagues. Two one pitch, low for a ball, three and one. And then then that third part, then you punctuate. Um, and as fate would have it, he makes his major league debut at Safeco Field and left his grandpa tickets. Um, you know, I felt that on a story like that, if you then talk about, well, then in the Rangers system, he went from Hickory to Myrtle Beach to Frisco to Round Rock, and they were, you know, it's too many names. Yeah. Um, I kind of think about it, you know, if you're at like a barbecue with your family or friends, people that aren't in sports, I don't want to say dumb it down, but you have to trim down those stories. You have to get to the point. You know, you got to try to limit how many numbers and names are in the story. So, um, that, that's nice in the newspaper article to, to mention that about the stories. I, I think that the key is to picture a casual fan, picture your friend at a barbecue. You know, if I were to tell you that Brett Nicholas story, because you've worked in minor league baseball, you'll get a longer version because you understand the names and the places. Yeah. And you can um, fill in some details kind of in your own mind too, in some ways. Yeah, exactly. You know, how does, how do you map that out? Like, and, and I, you know, I, I've seen a video where you've talked about putting your book together um, and you kind of feeling like you're going to have a good day when you get everything organized in just a certain way. Um, yeah. How, how, how much time and how will you spend it to know like, all right, so here's a story. I want to tell this tonight if it works. Um, having an idea of how you're going to craft it as opposed to going in with here's 10 bullet points and we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. I certainly want to tell a story in the fourth inning and not the ninth inning. True. <laughs> um, I think it's important to always, when it comes to gathering stories, first off, always have that radar open. Um, just yesterday, the Padres had a roving instructor in town, Kevin Hooper, and Hooper got a cup of coffee with the Tigers in 05. And I remember thinking, okay, a Hall of Fame induction um, what ties can I go to? Okay. Trevor Hoffman pitched in the Pacific coast league for Nashville. We'll use that. Uh, Vladimir Guerrero's final pro game was with Las Vegas. We'll mention that try to localize these hall of famers. And then I thought, wait a minute, Alan Trammell managed the tigers in the mid two thousands. Let's pull up baseball reference and Hooper, this guy in the building played for Trammell, the new hall of famer, um, and his brief major league stint. So having that awareness. And then from there, I like to write them in the scorebook, I know some guys will have like an Excel file on their player bios. I like to try to have everything in front of me. So I have my scorebook, the defense, and then some notes right there on the side of that page. Um, you know, Trammell Hooper. And I don't necessarily slot them for a certain inning. There's a lot of times it'll be a well-pitched game and things are moving quickly. And all of a sudden I'll look down after the post-game show and, you know, seven of the 10 stories I didn't even mention. Mm. So I look at a story as insurance in case this is a 13 to one game. Uh, the Pacific coast league has a lot of high elevated, crazy hitters parks, uh, 16, 12 games are common. So you're filling a lot of time. We rarely get a two and a half hour game. Um, I think I years ago, I would have been hesitant to do this if it didn't feel like, there was a natural transition to it, but I don't think that on the radio, people think twice. If you just bring up a story, um, if it's a slower fourth inning, just suddenly say 
this ballpark in Oklahoma City opened up in 1998, and then tell a funny story about the creation of the ballpark. Um, you know, this is our broadcast. If you want to get to this story, just find a way to get to it. That's awesome. That's one of the questions I always think about a lot of times is how do I, how am I going to get here and connect those dots and, and trying to make those connections. So it's interesting to hear you um, kind of break that all down as well. Uh, I want to ask you something offbeat before I let you go. Um, Cause I know you're an author. Uh, so uh, yeah. tell me a little bit about um, rooting for the home team and, uh, and why you decided to explore the history of team names. Cause I, I, I am also a person who, enjoys the sometimes ludicrous things of minor league baseball, including <laughs> names like the Chihuahuas. Uh, what, what got you turned on to turning it into a, uh, a side little side hustle, I guess, so to speak. Yeah. In uh, 2004, my first play by play job was with the Idaho falls chuckers. And that was the first year that that team had that name. And so many people would ask me, what is a chucker? Where does that name come from? It's a pheasant like bird, by the way. I always thought and, it was Chukers, so I'm glad we had this conversation. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, uh, I taught you something important. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's the thing. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so it made me curious about the backgrounds of the most unique minor league team names, both past and present. And I looked for a book that explained funny team names, and there wasn't one. So it became my hobby the next few years. I had never written anything other than like a school newspaper. So I had no idea how this gets from my laptop into a bookstore. So I actually <laughs> bought How to Get Your Book Published for Dummies. It's a real book. And uh, that was very helpful because it teaches you the proposal, teaches you what a publisher might be looking for. And after a couple dozen rejection letters, got an offer from uh, Cider Mill Press, their Simon & Schuster affiliate. Um, and what I do is I'd go to the bookstores and look at the baseball books and see who published baseball books. And I'd write down the names and those are the companies that I contact. And that publisher had done a baseball book a few years earlier. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, speaking of kind of some, uh, sleepless nights, it was scheduled to come out in 2011, but that's when borders filed for bankruptcy protection. <laughs> and that's when Kindles were kind of getting new and it was a very, unsure time for the book industry. Remember bookstores were closing down. Yeah. And uh, the publisher said, we've delayed publication. I'm thinking, oh my God, I, I told my girlfriend and I told my parents and they probably think I'm full of it now. I, I swear promise, I have a contract. I've a book. I have a contract. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it came out in 2012 um, and it was fun. It, it, has led to a lot of fun things for me just kind of as a hobby. I like writing articles about baseball history and the book led to some opportunities to do that with sporting news. Um, the publication of the book was fun to do the promotion of it. I got to go on NPR, various other interviews. With, were you on with Bill Littlefield? No, this oh. was uh, Robert Siegel, all things considered. Oh, you know what? That's I was going to say, if, if it wasn't only a game, but honestly, that's much better. Um, so, yeah. 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 That, yeah. That's that. You, you won out with that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know Bill Littlefield, too. Uh, listen to that show. It's based in Boston. But you're right about that. Good show there, too. Um, yeah. Uh, how did people find it if they wanted to learn about history of names and teams and things like that? Yeah, it's available on all the online retailers like Amazon. It's called Root for the Home Team, Minor League Baseball's Most Off-the-Wall Team Names. And it's funny, one of the things I learned with doing a book, you don't get to pick your own title. I thought the book title should include some team names in it. 
but this editor picked that name and I never really understood it. But one day I was doing a sports radio interview on the phone in Nebraska and the host says, and I just love the name of this book. It's like <laughs> a double meaning root for the home team, like the origin, the root of the team name. Oh, wow. And I thought, oh my God, that's why they picked that. So this guy in Nebraska told me why the book was named the way it was. And I'm the one who wrote it, but <laughs> I never even thought of that either. That's fantastic. What yeah, did you, what, I hadn't either. What were the other possible titles? Well, I liked like A to Z, like Aqua Sox to Zephyrs, um, X number of minor league team names. So that's what I wanted. I, I wanted to either do an A name and a Z name or pick two bizarre ones like, um, you know, these days there's so many. This is in 2012 before the before people shuckers and the baby nuts. cakes were born. But <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I just thought the title should have a couple of examples, you know, Iron Pigs to Slammers or whatever. What do you call the Chihuahuas when you need to reference them quickly? Some people are going with uh, pups or dogs. Um, one time I heard some fans say Chihuahuas and I kind of liked it, but I thought it sounded awkward on the air, so I ditched that. But usually the dogs. That's fair. That, that is that is what they are. Uh, Tim, if people want to find find you on social media or if they want to catch a uh, Chihuahuas game on the air, uh, how do they go about doing it? Thank you. Yeah, we're on the uh, minor league baseball app. So uh, the team website, epchihuahuas.com. Click on listen live. Uh, we're also on 600 ESPN El Paso if they want to grab the live feed there. And uh, I have TD Haggerty for Twitter, TD Haggerty, 1G. And uh, another thing that the book led to, I have a fun um, Twitter page of unique minor league stories, this day in history type of feel called Miners Team Names. So oh, cool. uh, baseball fans might like that too. Awesome. All right, that's Tim Haggerty joining us here on Play by Playcast. I love the, the breathing voice technique, uh, vocal exercise side of things. Uh, it's something that has begun to fascinate me more in my career over the last couple of years and since we've done this podcast. So uh, excited that we got a chance to dive into that with Tim here. And uh, the book is Root for the Home Team again, as he mentioned, Minor League Baseball's most off-the-wall team names and the stories behind them. It is by Tim Haggerty. Uh, (laughs) Anything from the Wichita Izzy's to the Altoona Curve and back. So uh, check it out online. Root for the home team. You can find the book uh, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, uh, Sears, Simon and Schuster. I didn't know that was still a thing. Uh, you can get it in Amazon in Canada and Japan, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, and I do know that there are some people that listen to this podcast in all of those places. So uh, root for the home team uh, by Tim Haggerty. Uh, that'll do it for us on this episode. Not quite sure who our guest next week will be. It might be Sean Woodland. I teased off the top. Uh, we'll, we'll break down CrossFit play-by-play a little bit. Uh, but for the time being, I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to cover football practice, soccer exhibition, and all sorts of other stuff going on tomorrow. So one day at a time in the busy fall camp season. Until next week, my name is Joel Gaudet. This is PXPCast, and we are out. <laughs>